Welcome to the first episode of Realist AudioCast. I'm Tristan Alexander, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we are going to be discussing ethics. I'm going to have my cousin, Jeremy Killian, on the line. So let me pull him up on Skype real quick, and we'll get started. Well, hello there, Jeremy. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing good. So, uh, before we get started, I'm going to uh, introduce myself a little. Um, my name, as stated previously, is Tristan Alexander. I live in Poto, Oklahoma. Uh, I'm not a redneck. Honest, I'm not a redneck. Uh, I'm married. Uh, I've been married for about a year and a half. Um, I manage a local restaurant and am going to school for audio engineering uh, in Edmond in the fall of next year. So, Jeremy, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Jeremy, and I live in Oklahoma City. I'm also not a redneck at all. Uh, I've been married for like three years, and I have a daughter, and I work at FedEx. I'm not going to school, and... That's pretty much it. Yeah. What is it? I think it was Kanye or somebody who said, too cool for school. Too, too school for cool. Yeah, right. And uh, Riff Raff said, I just want to blow up and act like I don't know nobody. So <laughs> well, that's, that's what I plan to do. Yeah. So anyway, uh, today we're going to be discussing some ethics. And uh, let's just jump right into it. So, uh, what, Jeremy, what do you think defines morality for an individual? Um, well, what define what is morality, or what what does how does each person find their own morality? Oh, uh, why don't you give us a brief definition of what you think morality is, and then we can discuss what defines morality for an individual. Well, obviously, I mean, I think pretty much everybody has the same definition of what morality is, which you know, it's what's right and wrong, and how a person should uh, not necessarily behave, but. Um, you know, what things are acceptable and what things are unacceptable um, in given situations. And I think everybody kind of agrees with that. It's just what specifically each person believes is right or wrong in certain situations is what's different. Right, yeah. And I, and I think that uh, to define a person's morality, that is a very individual thing. I think that we all come from different backgrounds and situations and things that... Uh, kind of, you know, define what's right and wrong to us. Like just for example, uh, someone who comes from a different country with different laws than we do may be okay with something that is not allowed here in the United States. And uh, it could be commonplace over there and we just, it blows our minds that that even takes place anywhere else in the world. So uh, I think it definitely depends on your individuality and background. Well, I agree. Sure. But that to say that is to also say that morality is shaped each person's morality is shaped by their experiences and by their culture and their raising um, not and I think I would agree with that 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 each person has their own morality each culture has their own morality and each um, you know it's just a different subset of people inside that, that culture um, that have their own morality 
versus the view of some people that morality is a, a universal good, you know, set by, you know, a creator or a god or a religion or, you know, whatever, what have you. It's that would institute that there is a set morality that these things are right in all situations and these things are wrong in all situations, which I think is, is false. I don't think that's, that's possible. And I, th I don't think that the earth, the people of earth have demonstrated that at all. Um, in fact, I think just the opposite. So has been demonstrated. I would absolutely agree with you. And, um, I'm kind of leaning towards the opposite in certain situations. I think that there is, uh, for some cases, very few cases, a an ultimate good, an ultimate end to what is good for mankind or, you know, maybe yourself even, maybe be a little selfish about it and say, well, uh, I had to do this. This is what was morally right for me because right. if not, you know, it would cause me harm or um, something un that would be unpleasant to your life. But at the same time, sometimes following uh, morality uh, is a sacrifice and you have to do what's right, uh, regardless of how it makes you feel, I think. Well, not necessarily how it makes you feel, but so you're saying that someone following their own morality may have to go against their own morality for what is cosmically right in the universe. Um, whether, regardless of whether it's beneficial or, you know, self deprivating, or, you know, whatever, as long as it's following that that morality? Is that what you're saying? Um, I'm saying that I think that um, sometimes if we are being selfish about it, you would be going against the uh, general agreement on morality in your society to benefit yourself. And um, I think that that's where it kind of diverges a little bit uh, because most of the time you're going to be sacrificing for your community. You're going to be uh, asking yourself what is right uh, in general, what would most people think is right in this situation? But uh, I think that sometimes, just occasionally, there is a situation where you go against the flow of society and say, well, this is what's right for me and would benefit me more. Okay, well, can you give an example? Because it's a little uh, <laughs> obtuse. Don't be so obtuse, Tristan. Obtuse? Okay, I need to be more acute. Examples. Yes. Okay, well, um, I can't give an example because it has, it, to be honest, it's never happened in my life. I'm, I'm a rule follower. I love following the law, uh, even if it's sometimes ridiculous. But I just think the instances like that do occur occasionally. But it's got to be, I mean, uh, something that is just so uncommon. It's kind of a, a, a needed, you know, the, the benefit of the many versus the benefit of yourself. So I guess I can kind of understand that as a... Uh, almost a heroic thing, you know, if, if certain situations come up and you have to go against what society says, this is the way things are, this is our, our set moral standards, you have to go against that for um, maybe a, a higher benefit or a mutual benefit of many people, even though it's not benefiting you as a person, almost like a martyr kind of. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think it is a bit of a martyr situation. Well... Okay, well, to go a little deeper then, where do you think morality ultimately originated or originates um, for each person or for a society or a specific culture or, um, or you know, whatever? 
where does that sense of right and wrong or what is where does that originally stem from in your mind in your views in my mind in my views i think that it stems from personally me trying to be the best me that i can be uh me examining each situation that i'm placed in daily and saying okay well what do i think is right and what would benefit maybe you know my wife or my my town or what have you it comes from something that's instilled within all of us i think we, i think that we all on the basic level of being a human have an innate sense of right and wrong no, according to the general sen- uh, situation, you know? Well, not true. Well, look, at, look at a situation where there are times when going against society's definition of morality would be more beneficial than um, not following. For example, let's say um, it might be more beneficial uh, okay, let's say the bank, you're checking your bank statement. The bank makes a you know, $1,000 mistake in, in your favor. So now you have an extra $1,000 that you know is not supposed to be there. Morality would tell you you're supposed to call the bank and tell them, hey, you've made a mistake. This is not my money. That's the moral thing to do is what society would tell you. However, if you were in a situation where your family was in a financial crisis and you really needed that $1,000 for food or you know for rent or whatever um, – where does the morality lies? Does your personal morality of this is what's beneficial to my family, so this is what I should do, or is there some, you know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, some invisible set of rules that says no matter what, this is wrong. You should, you know, correct the mistake or whatever, you know. So. That's where morality, I think, has gray areas. Whereas if a billionaire was to do that and say, well, $1,000, there's a mistake, so I'm going to keep it. It's less moral than if a starving you know, person who's living in poverty were to say, well, I need the money, so I'm going to keep it. So I don't think morality can be black and white. I think there are definitely gray areas. And so what do you think about that? Well, you do raise very good points, as always. Um, but just at the basis of what, how I feel about it is I would want to keep the money, but knowing that it's wrong, even if my family was starving, uh, I feel that because I didn't earn the money that it wouldn't be mine to spend anyway. And I would probably go and, uh, correct the mistake anyway. And where that derives from is it's just who I am. That's all I can say is it's just part of who I am. And I, I think that every person has a different, uh, outlook and sense of morality within themselves and it's just through your experiences in life and how you develop and the situations you've been through that define that because the the whole thing about it is I've never been in poverty I've never been someone who's starving and until the situation arises I can't for sure say what I would do but at this point in my life my morality says that I would take the money back and I would say hey the mistake was made Right. Okay. That's you judging your own morality, but but do the tables turn a little bit when you're judging someone else's morality? Which someone might say is, you know, you shouldn't judge other people's morality, or you shouldn't cast blame on someone for what they do because you know they may be in a different situation that you don't know or whatever. But I think in society as a whole functions by judging each other's morality. Um, it's the whole basis of laws and and rules that you know govern our everyday lives is based on us judging each other's morality and coming to a social morality of 
as a group, as America, this is our basic morality, and each person has their own subset of that. But so, if you were judging someone else's morality, let's say it's John Q that lives next door, and you accidentally overheard his conversation and knew that this situation was taking place, can you then go and judge his morality? And if so, how do you judge it, and what gives you that right, or that authority to judge someone else's morality? Other than the fact that it's illegal based on America's laws of morality. I feel that I could judge John Q only because I know what would be expected of me. If everyone, say uh, you think of everyone that you know, everyone that you love and thinks highly of you or uh, your society in general, what would they expect you to do? What would they look at morality or the, the moral thing to do in that situation be? And because uh, in my situation, being comfortable or being uncomfortable, uh, I would be expected to return the money because John Q, just because I don't know John Q's situation, I feel like that society would still expect John Q to return the money too. Um, just because that's the way people look at things. Um, yes, I understand that. And that is the way. <laughs> but why do they look at that? It's, it's counterintuitive. It goes against nature itself that, you know, self-preservation. This is what's beneficial for me. This is what preserves my life. This you know, whether he's a millionaire or whether he's in poverty, it doesn't matter. I mean, he might be, um, you know, middle America, average Joe. It doesn't matter because that $1,000 is still a positive influence on his well-being. So nature itself would say, you know, survival of the fittest. This is how it works, you know. So what has happened in human history that... I, I agree that nearly every society, every group of people, no matter where you go on earth, would probably agree that that's immoral to keep that money, knowing it's not yours. But why? If it goes against all of nature and self-preservation, you know, that selfish need that's in every animal and human and everybody. I mean, You're absolutely right. So why? Where does that come from? I guess that's this, the big question, isn't it? Exactly. This is the, <laughs> That's the big question. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, that's a tough one. It really is. Because yeah. I think a lot of, obviously, because I'm a Christian, I think that a lot of my morality comes from uh, what's in the Bible. And I remember a specific verse where they were, uh, you know, hating on the tax collectors. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, well, whose face is on this coin? And he's, they say, well, Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And I think that that means that, uh, you know, more than pay your taxes, it means if it's not yours, give it to who it belongs to. You know what I mean? Because in the sense that the tax, Christ already considered the tax to be something that didn't belong to those people because they already owed it to the government. Okay, so I think that if something doesn't belong to you, then innately that kind of goes along with don't keep what's not yours. Okay, so this is now shifted gears into the fact that you believe that obviously religion shapes everybody's personal morality. Not everyone's. But, well, <laughs> people who believe in religion or the lack thereof, they all have – that still shapes their morality, their view on morality. So, I just I think it plays a, a, a part in it at least because I know that beyond my religion, beyond Christianity – if I just completely disowned my religious beliefs, I would still have morals. I would still 
think the way that I think. And so, I mean, all my morals don't just go out the window, but that's just something that shapes my view on morality personally. Right. Religion definitely shapes a person's morality. What they believe is the truth about life, whether it's, you know, Islam or Christianity or Hinduism or whatever, that that obviously plays a probably the biggest role in shaping one's shaping one's morality, but should you then be able to use your religion, your religious beliefs, to judge the morality of others? It almost goes back to a separation of mm-hmm. church and state kind of thing. Using a specific religion to govern or to, uh, I don't know, judge the morality of your peers. Is that okay and why or why not? I don't believe it's okay I, because I think that uh... – I'm a kind of mind your mind your own business kind of guy. I think that you need to uh, worry about yourself and improving yourself and being the best person you can be instead of worrying about the guy next door. And actually, that brings me to uh, a good point. I have a note here uh, that Aristotle says that the science that studies the supreme good for man is politics. So does politics shape morality? Is that something that when you go into the science of uh, politics, not you know, abortion, not anything that is a, a matter of opinion. But when you study what is good for all men, is that what defines morality mostly for a society? No, and I'll tell you why. I think a society's morality shapes politics uh, more than politics shapes morality on the short term. Today, uh, you know, Senator Bob is going to try and you know, legislate and, you know, his morality into whatever um, political situation he's in. If he believes this certain situation or this certain uh, act or, or uh, action is, is immoral, then he's going to try to either convince his other congressmen or, you know, pass bills or introduce bills into legislation that directly – Morality shapes politics more than politics shapes morality um, on the short term. However, on the long term, I think politics do play a point. It's kind of a like a butterfly effect type thing. You know, the farther you go away from in you know in a, in a linear line away from this certain action, the bigger the effect becomes. So, if John Q, uh, Senator John Q, says you know uh, you know wearing gray pants is illegal because I believe it's wrong and, you know, somehow convinces everybody in Congress to agree and they outlaw gray pants. At first, everyone's going to be furious because literally no one would agree that that's okay or that that's normal. However, if the law somehow stood 100 years from now, 200 years from now, when no one's wearing gray pants, um, it would seem commonplace and normal. Um, and that's, that's a little bit of a ridiculous example, but look at things like slavery. 200 years ago, perfectly fine, and everybody, you know, accepted that this is the way things are. Nobody questioned it as a moral issue, really. I mean, yeah, there were a few French people who did, but not French, fringe outsiders, you know. Anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but as a whole, people accepted it, and, you know, the law allowed for that. And, you know, there were people who eventually started questioning it and, you know, rising up against it. And then you had the Civil War and everybody knows history. But 200 years later, 
you would be hard pressed to find anyone in America who thinks that's okay, who thinks slavery is normal and fine. Nobody. So in that way, I think politics do shape morality for the future, but not in the present day. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, that's that's very insightful of you. Um. So, um, and I think that's one way that people fail in looking at. Um, a lot of people fail in that way of looking at not only politics of or history, but also if you, if you look at religion, um, every major religion in the world has some sort of text or uh, book or what have you that defines their religion, you know, their morals, their beliefs, you know, their story of how everything got started or whatever. And they're all over 2,000 years old, um, some even older than that. Um, 2,000 years ago, when those books were being written or those scrolls or whatever, they, those people were probably uh, outsiders. They weren't mainstream people. Those views probably weren't mainstream. However, the morality and laws and politics of that day were directly reflected in those writings. And I think 2,000 years later, people look back on that and they see how things have changed, but they don't see the deeper meaning in how those things have changed, how morality has surpassed, in my view, religion completely. Um, because religion is old morality. It's 2,000-year-old morality or 4,000-year-old morality, depending on your religion. Um, and I think today's morality has kind of stepped up the game and actually become more moral because I'm living in the present than what I see the 2,000-year-old morality. Um, things like um, gay marriage, things like um, you know multiple wives or uh, slavery, for example, or um, how to deal with rape. Those things were all set aside two thousand years ago as a certain way. Today, we see them totally different, and we judge those actions totally different than they did two thousand years ago. So, yeah, it's a long story to get around, <laughs> but yes. Politics, religion, everything shapes morality, but not necessarily at that moment. I think they have a bigger effect in the future. So you think that uh, most political thought is more progressive than for the people now? You think yes. that it's, it's trying to uh, better society for future generations, which is, I yes. mean, it should be. It, it, I think it definitely does, and I think that it inherently is that. That is inherently the purpose of politics or, you know, political agendas and political movements um, that's the whole point is to better society but you know I think it's all based on right now people are against you know well I'm a Democrat so I'm against all the the you know conservative ideas of the Republicans or I'm a Republican so I'm, a, I'm against all these ideas or whatever you know oh abortion or oh um women's health or oh well then you get gay rights and oh no but gay is wrong and gay marriage and people shouldn't do that and people shouldn't do this and right now it's a political versus morality debate I think if you go 100 years from now it'll be the same thing as it was with slavery people will look at it like are you serious you, there were literally a time when the government told you who you could or could not marry that's absurd that's crazy today it's commonplace and it's actually a fight over whether or not, you know, and that issue may be more important to others than some people just don't give a crap. I mean, 
either way, it doesn't affect them. So, but a hundred years from now, it'll be looked at totally different. And, and uh, the, the morality of a hundred years from now will be totally different too. So that's very true. And as, uh, I know this is a very, uh, People would look down upon me for this view, but I completely agree about the gay marriage thing. I don't think that uh, the government should have ever dictated who can get married and who can't get married. I think that's ridiculous because it doesn't affect anyone but those people, and if they, it, they're not hurting anyone. And while you may disagree with it, it's not affecting you. Exactly. And um, that's a kind of another mind-your-own-business type of thing. Because that shouldn't, uh, whether you're gay or not, shouldn't define you. I, I have, you know, I have my band Othello, and our lead vocalist is gay. And he is one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And you know what? Every time I see him, I hug him, I tell him I love him, and he, uh, he's awesome. He works a full-time job at Chili's. Uh, he really contributes and is of stable mind. And like a lot of Christians think that there's just a bunch of crazy homos running around. And I mean... You know what I'm saying? Like, so the government should have never played a part in uh, gay marriage or marriage in general. And I hope that we do get, you know, progress to the point where that isn't a big thing anymore. Right now, it's huge. I mean, but uh, overall, like we like we said, I think it's what's good for the common man. And uh, it's always going to be changing. It's always going to be improving, hopefully. And uh People are just going to be different. But overall, what would you, uh, if you had to say, what was the uh, ultimate end goal for society? What is the good for the common man? Like, what does that consist of? Well, I don't think you can really say that there's ever an end point or a, uh, a goal, um, because I think those goals are, are always shifting. Um, but in my view, as my own morality tells me, if I were going to, I became supreme ruler of the world and could make up, you know, make society how I thought it should be. You know, I would obviously would be a violent free, violence free society, um, whether that be domestic violence or racial violence or any kind of violence, it doesn't matter. Um, violence free. Um, if you have a problem with somebody, you work it out, you figure it out. Violence is off, it just doesn't exist. I think that's the biggest number one thing that is overlooked and the biggest problem that's overlooked in American society today people want to argue about guns or uh, gay marriage or um, people want to argue about abortion and they want to argue about the budget and the money and, and bankers and you know poor people and welfare all these things are, are pointless in the grand scheme of things if you look at all of from today on human history those things have mattered today but 200 years from now nobody's going to care I mean a thousand years from now nobody's even going to know or remember. But I think violence is the number one thing that is plaguing not only the US, but I think the world in general, that people don't don't see it as an epidemic. It's not an urgent thing. It's because I don't know if people just see it as, well, it's just something you it's just commonplace, you know, or or what. But I think eventually people will move past that and they will understand it in the future I don't think there will be violence I think eventually the world will be a violent violence free society or it'll destroy itself one or the other but that's the biggest thing in my mind I think is violence I think it's it's an atrocity I completely agree and uh, for those tuning in who don't know me uh, my father is a truck driver 
and uh, he drives cross-country hauling all sorts of different materials and things and uh, that leads me to actually where I'm going with this is the is I have a story uh, my father heard a news report uh, from a gas station that he had previously left I mean just hours before and uh, a trucker was pumping gas into his semi and a man ran up and stabbed him for $12. He had $12 in his wallet and the man killed him. So hopefully we do <laughs> start to open our eyes and uh, I completely agree with you. Violence is a plague. It's a disease and uh, I don't see how a mentally stable person can be shifted so hard into thinking that that's okay or that it's it's an acceptable way to handle a situation. It's crazy. Of course, of course not. But it, it happens every day um, in every neighborhood, every um, city, every country around the world. Not, I mean, maybe not murder to the point of actually killing someone, but, you know, assault, um, um, you know, fights physical, domestic violence, child abuse, any kind of violence, anytime you are physically hurting someone for whatever purpose, I think is, uh, is wrong. It's not okay. And it, um, it seems to be being overlooked, but I think that is one thing that my morality says is a huge deal. Whereas, you know, someone who's an MMA fighter who likes to beat his wife would think, oh, Violence is normal. You know, military, well, you got to have violence to, ha you know, to protect yourself. But if there were no violence, if violence weren't commonplace, you would have no need to protect yourself. That's very true. It's a very good point. So this, this goes back to the whole guns debate, which I know I'm getting off on politi political <laughs> stuff. Uh, this whole, well, we need guns to protect ourselves from guns. But if there were no guns, yes, there would still be some people, criminals, who have guns. But... You wouldn't need a gun to protect yourself from the everyday gun owner if every person didn't own a gun. It's kind of the same principle. And so that's my morality says that, but other people don't agree. And I think that's the whole point of morality in itself is that you no know, two people will have the same morality, which is where a lot of the problems in pol politics and government governing 300 million people that all have different views and all have different ideas of what is right and wrong and what morality um, is and, and says, that's the challenge. That's what makes it so difficult. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, kind of leading into this, I'm, I'm glad we were kind of taking this route, actually. You're familiar with the um, George Orwell book, 1984, correct? Yeah. I... I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, I was pretty sure you were actually the one who I discussed it with after having being forced to read it in high school, and it, I dreaded it then, but now looking back, it's awesome. Do you think that society will ever progress to the level that uh, society did in 1984? Do you think that we're going to be mindless drones and we're going to be uh, constantly watched with, uh, you know, thought crime, if you were an individual, if you have any individual thought, you'll be punished and reformed to be an outstanding member of society and contribute by strictly doing boring, basic things with no sense of individuality. Yes. Well, let me rephrase that. 
I think it's a very strong possibility. I think it goes along with what I said earlier about violence and that there's really only two options that eventually human society will evolve to the point where violence is, is extinct. It doesn't exist. Or society will destroy itself um, violently. You know, war and, and whatever will eventually destroy society. So those are really the only two outcomes. That's very and true. I, I think it's the same with, with the, the Orwellian society, the 1948 or 1984 society, that I think we are on the path to being that right now. If you look at the NSA, you look at um, cyber criminals, and um, I mean, it may not all be state-sponsored, but a lot of it is. Um, all the uh, cyber attacks that have come against the U.S., and you know, they're beefing up security and and, you know, with the Patriot Act, which some people are for the Patriot Act, which if you're not familiar with it, basically says that the government can just mass collect and store for an indefinite amount of time any text message, email, phone call, anything they want. They can turn on your webcam and spy on you anytime. They don't have to have a warrant, anything. They just, they just can, um, which they say is to protect us from terrorists and so that they can be proactive in a timely manner against terrorism and against terrorists in our country, which may be the truth. It may be that way, but it still is a step in the direction of a 1948 society. Whether or not it eventually gets to that extreme level, well, it's yet to be seen. We'll see. But I think we've definitely made huge strides in that direction. Um, Especially technologically. I mean, uh, most TV now and... uh, Almost every laptop you buy just stock has a webcam on it um, or speakers or, you know, whatever. So um, it really looks like they could one day just lock us down. Yeah, literally 90 – here's the thing. 90% of your life exists not in the physical papers and files and and physical realm. It all exists in ones and zeros on your phone, your computer, and the internet databases that you've never seen before you don't even know where they're at who has access to them i mean there's a there's a huge amount of trust between you and everybody else on earth and all the people who control all of this stuff um corporations companies which are basically just a whole bunch of people um and the government so yeah we've already made those steps in that direction every phone has a webcam on every phone has gps i mean and if you really stop and I'm getting carried away here, but if you really stop and think about what a phone, you know, your iPhone, right here, okay, well, I can call, I can text, you know, I can check Facebook or, you know, YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you think about it logically, literally all human knowledge, anything that any human person knows or has ever known, I'm literally holding all human knowledge in my hand at this moment, which is crazy if you think about it, but it's also scary because we depend so much on this knowledge and this access to that knowledge is, you know, global consciousness that exists in electronics, in electronic form. So, which if you uh, kind of look at the uh, millennial generation, uh, you know, our people, our age and, uh, and a little younger, uh, they spend so much time on their phones. They log where they're at. 
uh, you know, check-in became a, a big thing on Facebook not too long ago. Everyone's checking in, you know, if they go uh, eat at Warehouse Willies or if they are at McDonald's or they're at the football game or, you know, and it just seems like everything is logged or uh, collected somehow. And it, it just makes society so binding. You know, it, it really is. It needs uh, – it's crazy. Yeah, I, I do think there is potential, though, for good to come out of all of this. Um, as I said, I think it is a good thing that I can hold all human knowledge in my hand. Um, there's inherent evils and people that want to do evil and that can attack or whatever. But I think that it's also a progressive step in the right direction. Um, and if you think about, you know, science fiction of, you know, merging consciousness with electronics and, you know, that eventually you will, your body will die, but your consciousness or your... Um, your brain and your thoughts and memories will all be, you know, protected and encased in this, you know, cybertronic connectivity with computers and, and the human mind. And I don't think that's too far-fetched. I mean, I think it's a possibility that at some point we could figure that out. I don't see why not. I mean, your brain is nothing but a bunch of electrical signals anyway. We're just going to figure out how to read them and harness them and collect them and store them. This much the same way we do with this and you know, Skype and everything else is the same thing. Um, so I think, yes, we're in the steps in the right direction for society and for humankind to <clears throat> really achieve greatness. But I also think there's, with every step of, towards greatness, there's the possibility to fall into darkness um, with everything. It's just the way it is. And so... We'll just have to see. I yeah. Guess. It's it's going to be ex- an exciting time. I mean, it's already an exciting time to live in. I mean, jeez. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was done. I was just I was just okay. saying that because, like you were saying, uh, I think about that a lot. How, uh, how real are you even? Because if all your brain is is a bunch of uh, neurons firing and that can be harnessed one – or that's going to be able to be harnessed one day, then uh, – how precious is human life now? You know what I mean? Like how we should not be on our phones all the time, how we should not be behind a computer. Uh, we should be trying to have an, a human experience. And that's all I was going to say is how to, how much technology is taking over our lives. It's crazy. Yeah. I was going to go back to the original point, kind of circle around here, back to the original point of the, the George Orwell book, 1948. And you asked me if I thought society would ever get there. And I said that we are taking great steps. And, you know, I touched on the point of uh, governments overstepping their boundaries into our rights as privacy or whatever. But I think if you look at the, the one of the biggest things that stood out to me in that book uh, was thought crime. Mm-hmm. That someone could literally be charged with a crime for what they are thinking. And I think to an extent that pretty much happens today. I mean, if if I were to go on and make threats that I was thinking about blowing up a school or that I was thinking about um, murdering a whole bunch of people or, you know, attacking the president or whatever, and I were to post my intentions to do that, whether or not I ever actually follow through with them, the police can still arrest me and put me in jail as a crime for even thinking about doing that. So that's a little bit of a thought crime. But then if you look at on a deeper level, look at religion. And that's all religion is, is a, a giant, I'm not conspiracy, but a way for a group of people to 
imposed thought crimes on themselves. Um, number one biggest thing you can't do in any religion is doubt. You can't doubt it. You have to believe it. And if you catch yourself doubting, that's the biggest sin there is. I mean, doubting or thinking against that religion or that deity or whatever. And a little backstory on my life. Um, you know, yeah, I used to be a Christian. I grew up in Oklahoma, a Bible Belt Christian. Went to church every Sunday. At some point, I got away from that. It's a long story. I won't get into that. But I had a point that I was going to and uh, just lost it. Well, hey, that's all right. Um, about you were, you were speaking about uh, how religion is basically people imposing thought crime on themselves to justify. Yes. Thank you. Now I remember. <laughs> um, anyway, so I moved on and I, I now currently consider myself an atheist or I don't believe any God exists to be more specific. Um, but that transition was very tough. Um, it wasn't just, I woke up one day and said, you know what? I don't think God exists anymore. Um, and I think the, the whole point of thought crimes is very real because if you're in a religion, and I'll use Christianity as an example because that's where I came from, to start thinking that there might even, to even think that there possibly might not be a God, puts a, you, fear, you put a fear in yourself once you start thinking that, that, you know, because there's this punishment of hell or, you know, whatever that is in there by design to keep people in line, I think, you know, to keep people from thinking and doubting that. But once you start doubting that and having those thoughts, you immediately are flooded with fear. And anybody who's ever had the inkling of an idea that there might not be a God or that there might not, this religion might not be true, can tell you that they're inundated with fear immediately because that's the way it's designed to work. That you're thinking, having free thought is not encouraged in a religion because all of your thinking has already been done for you. Everything that's ever you're supposed to do, the way you're supposed to do things, what's right and wrong, morality, everything's been laid out in this book that was written by who knows who, you know, 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, whatever. Um, and to doubt that or to go against that is not only punishable by death, but punishable by eternal torture, which is worse than death because it never ends, which is a pretty strong consequence for something but then they throw that loophole in there that well you just kind of an Orwellian thing you know you don't come against it and you stick with the system and you do what you're supposed to and you never question it and you have eternal freedom eternal life you know this this reward at the end of whatever life you have it's very Orwellian if you think about it and I think um you know, George, you know that that 1948 is a is a big thing that people look at in political and um, societal context. But as a religious context, I think it also plays a, a point. I think that was a little off topic, but I wanted to put that. No, in. I completely agree. I mean, uh, that's why even within our family, you and I have different beliefs. And to be honest, that's why I'm super proud of you, and I consider you, you know, you to be a very intelligent person, is because you aren't just a mindless drone worshiping a god that you never questioned. 
You know what right. I mean? Like, I mean, I've, I've questioned God. I've questioned the existence of God. And we reach different conclusions. But at least I questioned. You know what well, I mean? Yeah. At least I came to my own conclusion. I think the whole idea of thought crime already exists at some point in our society through religion, in my opinion. Yes. And I think it also carries over into uh, a little bit into government and politics in the fact that even, like I said, even just threatening or thinking about or planning to kill someone or harm society or whatever is punishable by law. I mean, you can go to jail for that. So that in itself is thought crime. Maybe not to the extent of the book 1948, but I think we're only a few steps away from that if society were to go in that direction, which I'm proud to say I think society is moving away from that. I think it's moving in a more progressive, as a whole, moving in a more progressive direction. It's hard to see it living in backwards Oklahoma where everybody's conservative. Anything that's not the way it's always been is wrong. True. But I think if you look in the media and you look online and you look at the consensus consensus of the American people, they're moving in a progressive direction. And I think the world as a whole is showing that too with the Arab Spring and uh, everything that's going on in the Middle East and, you know, the these Muslim dictators that are being overthrown by their people and you know, I think it's it's all a, a progressive step in the right direction. Uh, for the for the entire world. And I think this is a critical time. Uh, I think the next hundred years are gonna be interesting. I completely agree, and I hope I'm around to uh, witness some of those great steps. But uh, let's shift gears again. Let's let's go a little different route. This one's going to be fun. Um, road rage at Walmart. Okay, I want to talk about self-awareness a little bit. Okay, um, I'm going to start off with another quote by Aristotle, and uh, then we can discuss it, because I know that I have some issues when I go to Walmart. Um Aristotle says, uh, a bad moral state once formed is not easily amended. Okay, so I would consider myself to be a pretty self-aware person. I am usually aware of my surroundings, my uh, tone of voice. Uh, I try not to uh, inhibit someone from shopping, (laughs) so to speak, uh, with me being in their way. I try to be courteous, and uh, that's also another thing is... uh, that I want to speak on is not so common courtesy. So tell me, Jeremy, is it just me? <laughs> Do you get road rage when you go to Walmart? Does it aggravate you when people who are not self-aware uh, get in your way? Yes, and not only at Walmart. <laughs> All day, every day, and especially being someone who drives for an occupation. I work for FedEx. I drive, um, and the you see a lot of people every day in a driving situation, which is, you know, it's just a bunch of people doing the same thing, but on their own in a collective, kind of like an ant colony. Every ant, ant's doing their own thing, but they're all doing it in unison to, to a certain goal. And it's the same way with driving. Each person is responsible for driving their own car, but they're all driving together on the same interstate or freeway or road or whatever to a common goal of not crashing and killing each other but you can't even imagine the amount of unawarity that's not even a word but I'm making it up 
that is now a new word, unawarity, of people. Like, they just are, I don't want to say stupid, they're just <laughs> unaware world around them. Maybe it's a hyper-focused on whatever it is they're doing or they're thinking or whatever, but I just, it blows my mind. And I see it at Walmart when people are shopping, I, you know, and they stop in the middle of the aisle to dig a piece of gum out of their purse and they're blocking the whole freaking aisle with their cart that's sideways while they're digging for this gum, which is no big deal if they notice, oh, someone wants to go through, let me get out of your way. No, they don't even notice they're so focused on whatever it is they're doing that they don't understand that other people are trying to live life around them and they're inhibiting them. It happens at Walmart. It happens on people are driving. And it, this is funny that you brought that up because I've been thinking about this a lot over the past four months that I've been driving regularly every day um, for work. And it's crazy. It's ridiculous that... I would say 75% of people have no clue what's going on around them at any given point. I would completely agree. Craziness. It is. And uh, the reason I bring this up is because Sydney and I have uh, started buying our own groceries since we've been married. I have not been doing my shopping for more than a year and a half. And uh, that's just how it is. And so whenever we go to Walmart, I get so grumpy. I get so fed up with dealing with everyone who won't get out of my way this entire, and I'm not saying it's because they're Mexicans, but this entire family of Mexicans can be standing strewn out across the whole aisle and there's 10 people waiting on them, but you know that they're going to look at every product on the Mexican aisle with no intent to buy it and waste everyone's time anyway. That's what gets me a lot of the time is that most people who are in your way are looking at things that they do not intend to buy. I mean, um, I, I feel like that uh, as a self-aware person, it's so much more aggravating to deal with people who are not self-aware. Uh, but the whole point of this is, is it my fault for wasting my energy on those people when they don't realize what they're doing? Uh, is it <laughs> because um, I feel like that if you're self-aware then you should be intelligent enough to say, okay, well, I'll find a solution to this by going around the aisle, even though you shouldn't have to, and not waste my energy on being upset about it. Well, I've had the same thought. First, let me just point out the fact that I think self-aware may be the correct term. I don't know, but it's a little misleading. So when I heard originally something about talking about self-aware, I was misled to thinking that we were going to talk about uh, consciousness self-aware you know scientific oh right yeah but anyway so I think self-aware in that word means you're aware of yourself I think everybody is self-aware the problem is is they aren't aware of their surroundings Uh, everybody else aware you know what I mean true everybody knows what they're doing and they know what they're doing and they just don't know what the hell everybody else is doing that's the problem so what gets me is um, that how I just had a thought and it's gone again. I'm not good at this. Well, hey, that's all right. Um, 
the reason I chose to say self-awareness is because I feel like that if you are aware of yourself and you're aware of your buggy or your truck or car or whatever you're operating, then you are also going to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on at that particular time so that you function correctly in accordance with everyone else around you. That's why I chose self-aware as the title of this section, because I feel like that if you, if you don't even know what you're doing, then why are you even out? Why'd you even get out of the house? True. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. But And also, I think going back to your point, you said, are you wasting your energy? Um, or should you just you know, go around that person and go all the way around the aisle and come back the other way? Because you shouldn't have to, but you should do it as a self-aware person or are you wasting your energy? When I first started realizing that this was a problem, that people don't know what other people are doing, I would get so furious to the point I wouldn't be able to control myself. Like I probably looked like an idiot screaming and cursing at my steering wheel and banging on the dash. It's just so infuriated at people. But I started thinking it would happen four, five, six times a day that I would just it would build up to that point of I would just be so angry and mad. And then I started taking it out on people. If somebody would, you know, not looking and they didn't signal and they just whipped out in front of me because they weren't paying attention I would get mad and I would get honking and I would speed around them and then I'd be like what What the heck you know what are you doing (laughs) and I thought I guess the thought that was in my mind was you know I need to educate these people and eventually they'll get it then I got to thinking there's 500,000 people in this city not to mention the people that are just passing through going to wherever there's no way that I'll ever educate everyone. And probably 100,000 of those 500,000 people aren't even capable of being educated, so that's a waste of breath anyway. So I think it's a waste of energy to try and remedy the situation because there's nothing you can do about it. And I hate to use the term stupid, but people who aren't aware of their surroundings and aware of everybody else and aware of themselves and what's going on at the moment are stupid and there's you can't as you know the great philosopher ron white said you can't fix stupid (laughs) and so i think that's where the waste of energy is 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 allowing yourself to be hindered by the stupidity of others and this is something i'm working on every day whether it be at walmart or at at work or you know driving home from work or whatever that and it happens in other situations, but I think those are the two situations that I think stand out the most of when the lack of attention to their surroundings plays the biggest roles when people are all together. Um, Walmart, you know, large groups, Walmart, grocery store, you know, on the interstate, the freeway or whatever. So I completely agree. And uh, I am pretty partial to the word stupid. I love the word stupid. I love calling people stupid. I just wish people weren't stupid because I personally, I hate getting upset. I hate feeling aggravated. It just ruins my day and it throws me off uh, for way longer than it should. You know what I mean? It takes me so long to recover from not being aggravated from a 15 trip to Walmart because an old man took 20 minutes going down the peanut butter aisle and I just wanted to grab a loaf of bread and get out of there so I can go eat with my wife or whatever. You know what I mean? It takes me two hours to calm down from that and I'll rant and rave about it all day. So I think it is kind of a waste of energy. I agree. And I I used to be that way. Like somebody would cut me off on the interstate in the beginning of my day and I'd be 
mad about it all day. It would just ruin my entire day because that one person, and I would just stew on it, and I would just get so mad at that one person who I'm probably never going to see again anyway. It was it was maddening. It would drive me nuts. And then I would come home, and then my wife would be like, so how was your day? And I would be like, it was horrible because, you know, this guy pulled out in front of me, wasn't even looking. You know, I'm in a huge 18-wheeler. It weighs 40,000 pounds, and he's expecting me to stop on a dime, and he wasn't even looking. How do you miss that huge truck? And I would just explode on her about this one little instance in my day that was bad. And she said, okay, well, except for that, how was your day? Were you not just listening to how horrible that one thing was? Obviously, the rest of my day was horrible, but if you want specifics, well, I guess actually it wasn't that bad the rest of the day. The rest of the day was fine, but my day was ruined because I was focused on what that idiot did. So that's something that I personally, and it's funny that you brought that up, but that's something I've personally been trying to deal with. Going back to uh, sentient thought, I guess, is where you thought that this was going in, I guess, robots and things. Have you seen the movie Chappie? No, I want to see it, but I haven't had a chance with the baby and uh, everything. I just, I'm way behind on my movie watching list. Well, um, it's about a, a sentient robot, and the whole, it's kind of weird that it's tying together like this. You need to watch that movie. It's really great. But it has, uh, as the two main characters, uh, a guy named Ninja and a girl named Yolandi. And they are actually a part of uh, the South African rap group, I believe from Cape Town, called D'Antward. Okay, and D'Antward summed up how I feel about all the people at Walmart in one great sentence, and it's not politically correct. He said, don't worry about those stupid people. It's better to just be nice to those retards. I agree. So uh, that's that's what I'm going to try to practice. Uh, it's very hard, though. Like you said, it's something you got to work on every day, and I'll, I know I'm tired of wasting my energy about it, but... Uh, Jeremy, I think that that's about all the time we have for this episode. So uh, it was great having you on. Um, I'll have to uh, hook you up on another episode because uh, you were very insightful and I had a great time. 